Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, unfortunately, is usually only relegated to funerals and graveside services. Um, it's often viewed as a, as a psalm only for sad souls. But I think this is a, a mistake uh, because this psalm is not just for the, the weary, those feeling like they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The psalm is, is exuberant. It is triumphant. It is defiant in its joy. My cup runneth over, says David. And that obviously is hard to emphasize when you're at a funeral and need to be mourning with those who mourn. It's also unfortunate uh, that we relegate Psalm 23 to funerals only because it's, it's hard in that situation to really dig down deep into the theology of Psalm 23. We don't want to feel like we're shoving theology down mourners' throats. And so we're often left to think that Psalm 23 is kind of a basic, rudimentary, simple psalm when nothing could be further from the truth. This psalm is profound in its treatment on the sovereignty of God. Spurgeon called it the pearl of the psalm which is why I think as we sung this morning, it just permeates our entire hymn book. But lastly, and, and perhaps most importantly, we must not pass off, pass off Psalm 23 to only funerals because the best time to learn to fight is not after you've been thrust into battle. The best time to learn to trust in Christ is not when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, but before. Right? Trials are promised to us as Christians and we need to prepare we need to be ready for that day. C.S. Lewis speaks about this in his little book, The Screwtape Letters. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's sort of an odd little book. If you've never heard of it, Lewis writes from the perspective of one demon, Screwtape, who is instructing a younger demon on how to properly tempt a human being. And this is the advice that the older seasoned demon gives to the younger demon. He says... You must often have wondered why the enemy, enemy in caps, because that's God, a demon's writing, why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment, but merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. And so he leaves the creature to stand on its own leg to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. And it is through such trough periods, much more than the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature that he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. To trust God in the, in the sunshine is a good thing, but to trust God in the valley of the shadow of death is a great thing, and that's what Psalm 23 calls us to, to trust our shepherd no matter the circumstances. Right? Unbelief is the root cause of all our sin that we, we fail to trust. It is a good Savior that leads us. We're going to divide up Psalm 23 into three reasons that we should trust Yahweh our shepherd. Three reasons we can trust Yahweh our shepherd. First, he provides. 
Second, he guides. And thirdly, he plans. He provides, he guides, and he plans. Let's read the psalm together. It says, A psalm of David, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Let's pray. Father, there are those of us here who are full of thanksgiving and rejoicing in all that you are doing in our lives, and there are those here who are mourning and passing through times of great sorrow and grief. And we all need your Spirit, Father, to open our minds and illuminate our minds to understand the truths that you explain to us here, that you are a good shepherd. Help us to trust in you. Open our ears to hear your voice and to follow you and to love you and to trust you all the days of our lives. We pray for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, the first reason that we can trust our good shepherd is that he provides. Uh, The psalm starts, a psalm of David. David is the human author. He's been obviously a shepherd himself. And so he writes from experience when he says that Yahweh is my shepherd. Some of your Bibles say, the Lord is my shepherd, Lord in all caps, which is showing us that David is calling God by his covenant name, Yahweh. Uh, In Exodus 3 is where God explains that that's his name, I am that I am. That is to say you can't compare me to anyone or to anything, only I am what I am. So he relies on no one He relies on nothing. He's self-sufficient. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He is independent. He is the almighty sovereign of the cosmos. And I think David is just sort of blown away that Yahweh, the great I am, is the one who is his shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's just what a, what a true, these two truths sort of in juxtaposition with themselves, that you have this, this deeply personal truth that Yahweh is my shepherd. And David intertwines that with this transcendent reality that his shepherd is the great I am. Right? My shepherd is Yahweh, the one with limitless resources who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so David explains in confidence, I shall not want. How could I? If Yahweh is my shepherd, Psalm 84, no good thing does he withhold from them who walk uprightly. Well, just to clarify a little bit, that phrase, I shall not want, can can easily be taken out of context. David does not mean that you're going to have a Ferrari and a nice house and a pretty girlfriend or whatever your wicked heart would desire. No, David defines what he means in the following phrases. He says that his shepherd gives him pasture and water, everything that the sheep needs for its growth. 
I think David is actually kind of quoting Deuteronomy 2.7. In Deuteronomy 2.7, Moses is recalling the time that Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years wandering around. And Moses says, in those 40 years, you lacked nothing. Reminds us of a number of other passages like Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. And it's another phrase that we take out of context and we try to put a lot of different things we want in that all, the, all these things. But Jesus, obviously, in that context, had already defined that all these things is food and water and shelter. And furthermore, in the context, I don't think this is even a, a promise that a believer can never lack food. The reality is that Christians do starve all around the world. Rather, this is a promise that God is going to provide everything we need to do His will everything we need to obey him, everything we need to please him, which very well could be to prepare the sheep for slaughter. But God always gives us exactly what's best for us and what brings him most glory. And the the focus here in these first verses is is that God provides. And, And David's emphasis here is that Yahweh's provision is the very best. Right, the, the two things that David mentions is, are green pastures and quiet waters. Uh, first, those green pastures. It's the idea that, that God provides the best sustenance, that God meets all of our needs, but not with kind of the scraps. He provides the best, the green pasture, exactly what the sheep needs, the best diet for our growth. And he makes us to lie down in those green pastures so that we can feed all that we need. He adds that he leads us to quiet waters, obviously where the sheep feel safe to drink. God is this fount of living water that quenches our soul's thirst. It's not some muddy, stagnant water full of bacteria. Quiet, peaceful waters. And the point is that God gives his children his very best. And the result of that, beginning of verse 3, it says, He restores my soul. Now, this line, He restores my soul, I think people can get confused easily because they forget that we're in this illustration of a shepherd and his sheep. And I think some people kind of wrongfully jump out of the illustration of a sheep and they imagine a human soul here. But we've got to stick with David in this illustration of a shepherd and his sheep. And the shepherd is restoring the soul of the sheep. And you think, wait, wait, Josiah, you're saying sheeps have, sheep have souls? Well, not in the way we use the word soul in English. But in Hebrew, a sheep literally is a living soul, a nefesh chayah. It simply means that animals are living beings. They're not plants. They're not like a rock or an insect. They're a being. So what does it mean that a shepherd is restoring the being of the sheep? Well, I mean, again, David's been a shepherd, right? and he, he's no doubt seen this. When you, when you provide a sheep with the best food and, and allow him to drink, right? no doubt David many times in this context of being in the desert, right? there's intense heat. So no doubt David has seen sheep that are tired, that are hungry, that are thirsty, and they're hot. And they finally arrive at that green pasture, that water. They eat and they drink and they lie down and just collapse into that green pasture. And their, their being is restored. Their being is revived, being refreshed. They've, 
partaken of the very best that their shepherd has provided for them. And the question then for you and for me this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that what God is doing in your life today is the very best? Do you believe that God is giving you his best, even in hard times? Remember, this is David talking. David, David, didn't, David didn't live some posh, easy life. He went through a lot of very, very difficult trials. And there's an argument to be made at the end of Psalm 23. We'll get there at the end. That, that David's writing this psalm at the end of his life at a time when he's away from Jerusalem in a very difficult moment in his life. And yet he says, I lack nothing because Yahweh is the one shepherding me here. And these trials must be good because that's the only type of thing this good shepherd gives. He provides good things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from him. Right? God is sovereign in all things, which means everything that happens in your life is by his design. All things. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He does what he wants in heaven and on earth. And so that's the rub for us when we go through pain and when we go through trials. Do you believe that God is the one who's on his throne providing you with what is best for you? Are you like David when you're going through trials who writes a song of thanksgiving and exclaims to God, I lack nothing. You are my shepherd and I trust you and I follow you without questioning. My cup runneth over or do you complain and grumble and question where he's leading you? It's actually, at the end of the day, pretty easy to tell whether you trust in God's sovereignty or not. The person who believes that God is sovereign and believes that God is giving him what is best is full of gratitude, is full of thanksgiving and joy because he knows he's enjoying the greenest pasture that God can provide. He's doing something wonderful in his life. Imagine you're a, a child, maybe eight years old, and you think the best possible thing that could happen to you tomorrow would be to go to Disneyland. At least when I was eight, that's probably what I would thought. Today, I'm not so sure. But imagine then if your parents told you that tomorrow you were going to go to Disneyland. How would you respond? I mean, you'd be so excited. You'd be so ecstatic. You wouldn't be able to sleep that night. You'd be jumping up and down. You'd be thrilled. you want to tell all your friends because you wouldn't be able to contain the joy that you had. Why? Because you think that the best thing that could possibly happen to you is what's going to happen. Right? The question is then, if a child responds like that at the thought of going to Disneyland tomorrow because they think it's best for them, then why don't you respond that way with joy when you have surgery scheduled tomorrow? or when there's a funeral tomorrow, or you have your first cancer treatment tomorrow. And the answer is you don't have joy because you don't actually trust that that's best for you. You don't trust Romans 8.28. You don't trust that it's true. You don't believe that God actually does everything for the good of those who love him. And you certainly don't believe in Romans 8.29 that the good, the eternal good that God is doing in your life through every circumstance is to transform you into the image of his son. You'd rather stay the sinner that you are than go through a trial to make you eternally more like Jesus because your Disneyland is not being like Jesus. 
You'd rather live an easy life. David says, Yahweh is my shepherd. He always provides me with the best pasture, the quiet waters, and I trust my shepherd. David knew how foolish sheep are, right? Sheep has no idea why he's on the path. Sheep doesn't understand. Just like foolish sheep, we, we can't often see God's good plan. We don't understand why he's leading us where he is. We don't understand why he's providing us with the things that he provides us. But we need to trust in the wisdom of our good shepherd. Now, to be clear, I, I'm not saying that you should be jumping up and down at a funeral. Of course not. That would be rude. But we should consider it all joy when we go through trials. Why? Because we know that our good shepherd is producing something in us through them. Right? He's only giving us what is eternally best for us, things that make us more like his son. So that's the, the first reason that we should trust our shepherd that he provides for us. The second reason that David gives us here at the end of verse 3, not only does Yahweh provide the best for us, another part of his shepherding is that he always points us on the right path. He, he always leads and guides us perfectly. Notice there in the second half of verse 3, David writes, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And again, I think we need to kind of just stay in this analogy of the shepherd and sheep. I, I do not think the idea is that this is some morally righteous path, but rather that this is the right path, the, the proper path, as, the, psalm, as the, the hymn writer notes. This is the correct path. This shepherd only leads his sheep on the best path to get to the green pastures. And again, that is a, a profound, mind-blowing statement on God's sovereignty, that, that God always has his sheep on the right path. Do, do you trust that? Do you trust that the path you're on today is the right path? You say, but <laughs> Josiah, I mean, the path that I'm on is, is, is not good, and, and it's honestly because of my own sin that got me here. God couldn't have put me here because I'm going through this trial and pain as a result of my own foolish choices. Well, David experienced much of the same thing, but, but that's actually where God's sovereignty shines brightest. Because though we cannot ever excuse sin, God is still sovereign over it. Even in those cases when it appears that we got on a painful path because of our own sin, even in those cases, we can say with David, God is using this for my good. I'm on the right path. Because this shepherd is sovereign over Satan. This shepherd is sovereign over my sinful choices. This shepherd is sovereign over everything. And he has me on this path because it's the best path to accomplish his purposes. It's the best path toward Christ's likeness for me. God is making me more like Jesus, and he will do anything necessary to accomplish that purpose. David is confident that Yahweh has him on the right path. And notice why David has this confidence. He says, because Yahweh is leading for the sake of his name, for the sake of his own name. So think about that a little bit. Because right, David's been a shepherd and he knows if he loses a sheep, who's at fault? Right? <laughs> it's the shepherd's name, it's the shepherd's reputation that it's, that, that's at stake when it comes to the well-being of the sheep. If the sheep is lost, it's not the sheep's fault, it's the shepherd's fault. 
Because it was the shepherd's responsibility to keep those sheep safe, which is why it's impossible that this shepherd could lose a sheep because he's leading us for the sake of his own name. He's leading us for his own glory. Now, I don't know about you, but talking about God's sovereignty and that he does all things for his own glory can can be a hard pill to swallow, especially in times of suffering. I know that I struggled for many years with with this idea of the sovereignty of God. I battled in my mind with the wicked thought that God was some sort of selfish narcissist who who did everything for his glory and, and made me suffer just so his name could be praised and exalted. But remember, Yahweh is not some sort of egomaniac like all the other false gods of the world who, who exist in eternity past, loving no one, content to love no one, and then create a world for the glory of their own person. And we know our God's not like that because our God, Yahweh, is triune. Yahweh, his name, is triune. And how does that change things for us? Well, let's think about it. When the Father created us, did he create us for his, the glory of his own person? Or was it because, in a sense, he said, my son is so glorious. My son is so majestic, so beautiful. There needs to be millions and millions of voices praising his glorious name. I'm going to create for him a bride. And then the son, he comes to earth and he says, I'm not here to seek my own glory. I'm here because my bride has to see how amazingly wonderful my father is, and I'm going to reveal all of his worth to her. And the Spirit comes and dwells among us so that we can see the Father in the face of the Son and be transformed into God's nature, into the glory of the Son so that we too can love and be loved as Yahweh loves himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So yes, God does all things for his glory. God does all things for the sake of his name, but that's not some inward, sinful, selfish love. It's it's outward. It's outpouring. It's beautiful. And we can rest and take comfort in this inner Trinitarian love, knowing that our well-being does not depend upon us. It depends upon the promise of the father to his son. You're safe because Yahweh's name is at stake. And Yahweh's name is at stake because the father has promised his son to make you into his image and he will accomplish that purpose. He loves his son far too much to fail. And we like David must take comfort in this. God is leading me for the glory of his name, for his own name's sake. And that gives us hope even in dark times. Notice verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. What is this valley of the shadow of death? I mean, I think if we continue with the illustration of a sheep and the shepherd, that that David is talking about this dark valley. It's it's a frightening path for the sheep. It's, It's pitch black. The sheep can't see. They don't know where they're going. But David is so confident that even in those times where we can't see God's goodness or feel God's guiding, he has nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. He knows that even the valley of the shadow of death is the right path. I mean, just, just think about it from the perspective of a shepherd. 
I mean, what sort of sick shepherd would lead his flock through some dark valley if there's another path that's shorter and easier? No shepherd could possibly think about doing that, which, which proves to us that if we're in a dark valley, we have to know. We have to know that it's because it's the best path, it's the only path to get us to the destination to which God is taking us. Right? It's, it's the best path to get us to where God's taking us, to our destination. And so the question is, as Christians, what is that destination? Where is God taking us? I think the big picture answer is Christ-likeness. God's making us like his son so that we can enjoy an eternity on a new earth with his son. Romans 8, 29, I already referenced it. God is doing everything in our lives to transform us into the image of his son. That is his purpose in all things. And so the question, once again, is, do you trust him? Do you trust your shepherd? Do you trust that he's guiding you on the right path, the best path to get you there? Or do you doubt and complain and question him? Deep faith in God does not only believe when things are easy. True faith trusts in the dark valley as well. Faith is, is believing the invisible, right? If you can see God's goodness in times of health and prosperity, that does not require a lot of faith. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. In Hebrews 11, those are the heroes of our faith, according to that chapter, because they all died not having received the promise. Great faith is required when God says no to our prayers, when God brings pain into our lives. Great faith is Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, telling his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Not you meant it for evil in the past, but God's now turning it into something good. No, you meant it for evil and God meant it. God did it for good. Obviously, we're, we're responsible for our sins, just like Joseph's brothers. But at the end of the day, the one who put Joseph in that dark valley of slavery and pain was Yahweh, and he did it for good. We all need to trust that Yahweh has us on the right path, and it's worth it. It's worth it to be more like Jesus. And that's, that's ultimately the question. Right? If this dark valley is the only way to, to get me to the destination that God is taking me, to get me more into the image of Christ, am I going to embrace it or not? Is it worth it to you to be more like Jesus? Do you love Christ that much? Or do you prefer the easy path of staying more like yourself, more in the image of Adam, sinful, fallen image? David says, even if I'm walking through this terrible valley, I trust God. I fear no evil. I fear no harm. Because Yahweh is with me. Yahweh is beside me. Nothing can hurt me. And now again, I mean, that doesn't mean you're not going to go through pain and difficult times. It, it means in context that, that nothing can keep me from God's purpose. Nothing can, can take me out of God's path. Nothing can prevent me from reaching God's destination. I will reach it because God is a mighty shepherd. David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, God's rod and staff speaks of, of God's protection both from enemies and from ourselves, right? God can both run away the wolves 
And also grab us and bring us back to the path that we need to be on. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Paul says in Romans 8. No created thing. Not you, not me, not Satan, nothing. Because the one leading us is the omnipotent sovereign of the universe. He's the eternal invictus. He's never lost a fight. Who could stand against Yahweh of hosts? No one. Which means we're absolutely guaranteed that Yahweh's purposes will come to fruition. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, had to learn this the hard way. But after all of his trials in in Daniel 4, he says that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the end of the day, if you are a Christian, the only thing that can happen to you is sanctification. Because that's, that's what God's doing in your life. God is omnipotent, and he only permits what's good for his children. Good, remember, eight, Romans eight twenty nine is transforming us into the image of his son. Now, you'd better believe that when you get to heaven, you're going to be thankful if you fought hard for sanctification here on earth. You're going to be grateful if you put to death your sin here because Christ's rewards will be worth it. But at the end of the day, every Christian will necessarily be sanctified because God is guiding us and we have confidence that he, our good shepherd, has us on the right path. He's guiding and protecting us. Well, I said there were three reasons to trust our good shepherd. The third now is that Yahweh is planning our journey all the way home. Yahweh not only provides and guides, he's planning every detail all the way home. David says in verse 5, You've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I think David is sort of subtly transitioning us a bit out of the analogy of a sheep and a shepherd. And we end up at this feast that God has prepared. And David is, David is just marveling at the spread. Uh, he's, he's just rejoicing in everything at the table. He, he knows the table is set in the very presence of his enemies. Again, I, I think it's probable at this point that, that David is being pursued by his enemies. And he takes comfort in the fact that, that Yahweh's vindication is coming. And so he envisions that God is just sort of pampering him and getting him ready for this feast. He says, you've anointed my head with oil, which might sound a little bit gross to us. Like, why do I want oil poured all over my head? But Obviously, this idea of kind of a soothing head massage was, was something that was very appealing to David. And, and the big idea is just that, that God is preparing David to enjoy his feast. He's getting David ready. And I, I think that just applies so easily for us as Christians, that, that the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming, and God is getting us ready to enjoy it. Our feast is coming. The new Jerusalem is coming we're going to sit at table with Abraham and the patriarchs. We're going, to, we're going to dine with Jesus. And just like David is confident that God is doing everything to prepare him to enjoy that moment, we need to trust that every trial that I'm going through, every difficult thing I experience, is to prepare me for a better eternity. My eternity is going to be better because of what God is doing in my life right now. When you get to heaven, if you're a Christian, you're going to look back on this present pain and say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, man, I didn't see it then. I mean, I was, a, I was a foolish sheep. I did not get it. 
But thank you so much. That was best. That was oil for my head. So David's just sort of celebrating God's sovereignty here. And again, it's not because his life is easy. It's because he trusts God's sovereignty. Notice how he celebrates in verse 5. He says, my cup is overflowing. It's, it's not a little bit of blessing. It's overflowing blessing. My cup runneth over. It's completely abundant. And we need to be able to say that. With Job, we need to bless the name of Yahweh when he gives and when he takes away. In life and in death, in joy and in pain, my cup runneth over. I have so many blessings that I don't deserve. We need to remind ourselves that anything we receive in this life that's not hell is a blessing that we do not deserve. Even a trial is much better than the wrath of God that we deserve. And again, we don't, we don't know where David was when he writes this psalm, but I imagine maybe he's out in some cave and he's hot and thirsty. And as he often does, he starts preaching to himself, right? Like in Psalm 42, he's like, soul, why are you downcast? Soul, thirst for God. Soul, rejoice in God. And here in Psalm 23, maybe he is feeling like he's in death's dark valley. And so he's telling yourself, soul, your cup is running over with blessing. Sometimes, you know, we got to we have to say something to ourselves until we believe it. Sometimes as Christians, our, our hearts need our wills to convince them. In other words, as an illustration, what, what do you do when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to pray? You wake up in the morning and you don't want to read your Bible. You pray until you want to pray. <laughs> you read your Bible until you want to read your Bible. What do you do when you're downcast and in despair? Well, you force a smile onto your face and you praise the Lord with your lips and you tell your wicked soul, God is providing the very best for you. God is guiding you on the right path and God is planning a wonderful eternity for you. Your cup runneth over. It's as if David is is sort of looking longingly into heaven and he's just visualizing that his aching body is being massaged with oil and he's embraced in the safety of God's presence and full view of his enemies. And this is not some sort of bizarre delusion of some dehydrated dude out in the desert. This is faith. Faith is the absolute assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is David trusting in his shepherd that Despite his circumstances, despite how he feels, his shepherd is trustworthy. Right? He knows, I don't see it, maybe I don't know how, but this must be blessing. This must be for my eternal good or my shepherd would not do it. Notice in the last verse there, Psalm 23, 6, David starts by saying, surely, and that adverb, surely, actually more often in Hebrew is translated only. It could go either way, certainly, but only goodness and only mercy is certainly true as well, that God does not give anything but chesed to his people. He doesn't give anything to us but loyal, faithful love. Romans 8.32, he who did not withhold from us his very son, how could he not graciously also with him give us all things? And I also love the verb there that David uses in verse 6. It says that God's goodness and mercy will pursue me, 
or follow me in some versions. <laughs> this idea that David probably has enemies who are pursuing him, but he trusts so much in God's sovereignty that he says what, what's pursuing me, <laughs> you know, even more so is God's goodness and his mercy. It's the same verb that David uses in a different context to describe dogs who are pursuing him and chasing him. And I think that's a really fun illustration because, you know, it's not like God's goodness is following us, but, you know, if we speed up a little bit too quickly or we make too quick of a turn that, that God's grace is going to lose our scent and not find us. No, the goodness and mercy of God are right on our tails. They will not tire. They will pursue us. They will overtake us. We will be overcome by them and they will have their way with us. We are objects of his love. God, is he has been called, is the hound of heaven who's pursuing us with his love. Our hope is secure that we will make it to God's house. The shepherd has never lost a sheep. As, John, as Jesus says in John 10, no one can snatch us out of his hand. We are safe in his grip. And then David ends with this final phrase here, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. And there's, and there's kind of an interesting uh, Hebrew issue here that the verb dwell can also be translated return. So there's some scholarly debate as to whether David is talking about going to heaven forever or where he's, whether he's on the run and he hopes to return to Jerusalem once more to be in God's house, as he mentions in a few other Psalms. At the end of the day, you know, I think the application is the same for us, that, that just as David trusted that God's goodness was going to pursue him until he was in God's presence, we can have that same confidence, that, that same assurance of salvation. We will be with him. We will dwell with him forever because Yahweh is a good shepherd. Yahweh always provides what's best for us. He always guides us on the right path. And he's planned out every detail of our lives until that day we stand with him in heaven. But that kind of begs the question that I'd like to try to answer now, coming to a conclusion and and, and turning to to the New Testament. And that is, how is this possible? I mean, we've been reading just about how God just overcomes us with blessing and he's so good to us. It's like, how do we... How do we fit that in with it with the truth that we're sinners who deserve his wrath? Like God is a just judge. How can he just give us blessing when we deserve judgment? The judge can't just absolve us of our sin and, and bless us instead of judging us. How how does this happen? Well, Phil Manley, Chaplain Manley, who trained me as a hospital chaplain, he told me to never ever preach a a message on Psalm 23 without concluding in John 14. So I got to obey. Turn to John 14, and we'll, we'll kind of end here. There's, there's so many parallels between Psalm 23 and John 14. And we know it's not, it's not an allegory to, to see Jesus in Psalm 23, because Jesus is the one in John 10 who says that he is the good shepherd. Jesus being the, the visible image of our invisible God is the one who reveals God's shepherding heart to us. And I, I want to read the first six verses here, and then I'll just make two or three applications. You, you remember in the context, it's Thursday night, just a few hours before the crucifixion. The disciples are troubled. 
They're wrestling with this idea that Jesus has told them he has to go away, he has to leave them, he has to return to the Father. And Christ comforts them with these words, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, another connection with Psalm 23, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I think often when we read this passage, we can miss the main point of verse 6. We often preach from John 14, 6, the exclusivity of the gospel, that you can't be saved through Catholicism or through Mormonism or any other religion. Jesus is the only way. And and that is true, and that is a correct secondary implication of verse 6. But when you think about the context, right, Jesus is trying to to console and comfort his true disciples here. Judas, the betrayer, has just left them. And Jesus is now with his 11 true disciples for the first time. And and they're troubled and he seeks to comfort their souls. He says in verse 2, "Look, look in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And so the reason that I'm leaving you is to make room for you in that house, to, to prepare a place for you. So that, Psalm 23, 6, you can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is essentially explaining, I'm going to the cross in order to make a place for you in my Father's house. So so you see, I have to leave you. I have to die. I have to go because I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm your only life. There's no other way for you to make it to my Father's house. The only way is through my cross. That's the only way you make it to heaven. So you see why I have to go? Because I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so I think Christ is emphasizing the same point that David made, that that we have to trust our good shepherd. When he's doing something, it's because it's the best way. It's it's the only way. Maybe maybe 10 years ago or so, our, our son was in the hospital a couple of months, and I remember the, the hardest part was always saying goodnight. Right? I think he was probably two or three at the time, and he could just never understand why I had to leave. And I remember so clearly on that final day when he was finally discharged. We're, we're hugging, and we're so excited. We're going home, and the, the doctor signs the discharge papers, and the nurse says that transport is coming. So I give him a big hug, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get the car. And I start to leave, and it just destroys him. And he's just so confused. It's like, I thought we were excited. I thought we were going home. Like, why are you leaving me again? He's crying, pleading with me, don't leave me. And to no avail, of course, I tried to explain to him, like, I, I can't get you home unless I go get the car. I'm going to leave you just one second. Just trust me for one second. But he's a child. He couldn't understand. And I think there's a sense here in John 14 that Jesus is saying, look, I have to leave you just, just for a minute. Because this is the only way to get you home. This is the only way that I can love you at home. And we're left here. And, and true, we have the spirit guarantee of our salvation, but, 
but we're here and Jesus is in heaven. And I think we can often be tempted to think, Jesus, if you love me so much, why aren't you here? I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this difficult time. It hurts. And we need to trust our good shepherd. If he's left us, it's because this is the only way. This is the right path. This is the only path to get us to the glorification that he has planned. Jesus has to be in heaven right now interceding for us because there's no other way you get to heaven. Jesus explains in John 16, 7, we need the Spirit sanctifying us. It's to our advantage. It's better this way. If there was another way, he'd do it. If there was a better path, we'd be on it. This is the best world possible for his glory and our good. If it's not, then God failed. And he's a terrible shepherd. But God does not fail. Our shepherd never makes a mistake. And so we've got to sing this truth. Whatever my God ordains is right. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Everything he's doing is to change you into the image of his son. Maybe it's hard for you to even imagine trusting Jesus in a situation that's difficult. And maybe that's because you just don't know his voice. Maybe it's because he's not your shepherd. And I would just give you the good news if you don't know Christ, that the good shepherd has already laid down his life for his sheep. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life that we can't live. He died the death that we deserve. He rose from the grave on the third day. And he's in heaven right now interceding for his own. And if you would abandon your sin, abandon your pride, and run to Christ, he, the good shepherd, will place you on his shoulders and bring you home. What a promise. Beautiful God we serve. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so often filled with unbelief. We beg you that you would help us to trust, that you would help us to believe, that we'd see the worth of our Savior Jesus. May it be our prayer daily to ask you to do whatever it takes to make us like your Son. Whatever, whatever path we need, we trust your wisdom, we trust your goodness to make us like your son, Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen.